Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins. Welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 102, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Christina Previtt. Christina is a physical therapist and researcher practicing currently in the United States with a special interest in exercise for the older adult. This was a fascinating conversation where Christina outlined some of the myths and misconceptions regarding loading older adults with respect to resistance training. We also discussed the concept of frailty and pre-frailty and some tools as to how to go about maybe recognize those for yourself or recognize them as a practitioner in your current practice. Again, a really, really great episode. I learned a lot from this one. I hope that you enjoy it and we'll see you in the next one. Okay, good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. Uh, Connor here back with another interview. It is a Thursday afternoon. Things are starting to become a little bit more sunny in Canada, which I'm happy about. For this morning's interview, I have Christina Previtt here. And the topic that we're going to be talking about is a topic that I think is really, really important to many of the listeners and stuff that I've kind of touched on in other episodes over the years. But I really want to focus in and and really dial things in, Christina, with you today about this topic that you are so well-versed in, and that's the topic of kind of geriatric care and um, geriatric fitness and geriatric physical therapy. So welcome to the show. I'm really excited for today's discussion. Yeah, thank you for having me. So before we get into the topic, let's talk about how, how and why did you get into geriatric physical therapy or geriatric um, fitness and injury prevention. I know that you started in Canada and you're now in the U.S. So for the listeners, just kind of outline that. I think it'd be great for people to understand your journey. Yeah, it's one of those things that I never thought if I was as a new grad that my career was going to take me down this path. And yet here I am. Uh, so I started in traditional outpatient orthopedics. I worked in two clinics. I am a CrossFit athlete. I've been training barbell related sports for the last 10 years. And so I took a job in a traditional outpatient setting, and then I took a job in a CrossFit gym. And so when I was in the traditional outpatient setting, I was getting kind of like that frequent flyer type of client that comes in, right? You get a client who comes in, they have an orthopedic injury. You work on bringing the pain down, increasing the resiliency of that uh, area, and then you discharge them. You give yourself a pat on the back. You're like, this is great. They go back into more sedentary behavior. They go back into their ways and all of a sudden they decondition over a period of time and then they end up back on your caseload. And because I was seeing that happening, I went in the CrossFit gym and started a, a more health and wellness focused class called the Boomers. And this was back in 2015. And so any individual that was discharged from PT care could continue on a wellness basis with me in this class. And it was kind of amazing because I would have individuals with di diabetes. I had a person with a AAA I, that was non-operable. I had a person who was trying to avoid knee replacements. I had people with hip replacements. It was kind of 
whatever, like whatever it was, we could scale and modify to anything, but the methodology around getting individuals strong was kind of that ethos there. And they just did so, so well. I was like, this is amazing. And I was like, we need to be doing this in PT. Like, I don't understand why we can't create this bridge between fitness and rehab and make it very concrete. And so I went back in 2016 to start my PhD part-time. And so I'm finishing up currently my PhD. I've had a couple of babies and on part-time status. It's been quite the journey, but on the role of high intensity resistance training for at-risk older adults. So I did a couple of randomized control trials where I took individuals who would be considered risky um, to load more uh, heavily, uh, individuals with mobility, disability, and individuals at risk for the development of frailty and did um, a bunch of exercise programs with them where I got them squatting and deadlifting and all this kind of stuff. From those trials, I was like, well, now I need to know how to put this into practice. And so I started my own business with my husband called Stave Off. Uh, So the idea around that preventative aim, that bridge. So we provided one-on-one PT care and we also created programs that were centered around older adults and wellness. So we created this, this nice atmosphere and community where people who were um, more intimidated around exercise or people who hadn't been in a traditional gym setting for, for maybe ever um, were able to feel comfortable coming to exercise. Was the original Boomer program in Hamilton? It was in Mississauga. So it was at Element CrossFit. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And some of those athletes are still in the cross the, the program isn't around anymore but some of them are just members of the crossfit gym now still for and they've been members now for seven or eight years and you know crushing 215 pound deadlifts on their 73rd birthday and things like that you know it's just PRs so cool. for their birthday so it's pretty amazing and then in that the kind of the full circle that brought me down to the u.s was that along that trajectory i started really being vocal and posting on social media about it uh, i got looped in with jeff moore who's the ceo of the institute of clinical excellence which is a continuing education company and myself and dustin jones started a geriatric curriculum called modern management of the older adult so we teach two online courses and a live course and i was getting contracted in all the time the demand was super high to get a geriatric specific course in rehab and then from there they started outpatient cash-based clinics and they said, we need to help have a, a model that's going to start fitting that prevention space into the U.S. context. And so here I am starting doing a bunch of teaching and, and PhD work down here, but also hoping to replicate our stave off model down in the U.S. context. That's amazing. So you started stave off in Kingston, one clinic, and then you, through how vocal you were on social media, you got picked up by the Institute of Clinical Excellence And then eventually you were just being drawn down to the U.S. because you were spending or you thought that you were going to be spending so much time there. So you and because I know Stave Off in Kingston is closed. Is that right? Yeah. So we wanted to keep the licensing rights to everything because we want to replicate it. And we could we didn't really know anybody that could have taken it over in the timeline that we we had laid out in terms of coming down here. So one reason for me being down here is that we have over 25 courses that are booked for this year and not even with COVID, but getting over an international border every weekend. My family's joking that I'm on tour because we have courses 10 weekends in a row um, coming up. And so that was one reason. And then the other reason was that we were going to try and see how we could create this model in the U.S. context. And we have so many, I have so many connections from teaching with clinicians down here who say, I want to do this. 
So part of my role is going to be trying to help that facilitate that business model. And do you have a, a ground floor clinic yet or not just yet? You're still doing the teaching. Yes, but it's not announced in, to oh. the public just yet. But it, it yes, the answer. You've heard is yes. it here first. Breaking yeah, news. <laughs> just a little teaser there that we will be announcing that the first one in the U.S. in the coming months. But yes, it's it's in the works. Do you see the model working on a grand scale in Canada and coming back to Canada at some point? And, and further to that question, what have been the differences and the similarities transitioning to practicing in the U.S. as a as a physical therapist? Yeah. So right now I'm not actually actively treating because I'm working on finishing my dissertation and I have a six month old at home um, and a toddler. It's just been a little bit crazy, but um, in terms of the the context. So if we're thinking about a private billing model in the Canadian context, what's your, who, where's your audience primarily? Mostly Canada, but I've got probably about 15, 20% that are out of the U S and then a variety scattered throughout the world. Okay. So in the Canadian context, we have it like OHIP or our publicly funded networks and then our, our private insurance. So with OHIP, we have the plans of care. So it's like $312 if you're OHIP contracted clinic, which is a very tough model to, to provide really high quality care. Like there are people that are doing it, but especially with our older adults that have high levels of uh, comorbidity, there's a lot of burden. There's um, several decades potentially of sedentary behavior deconditioning. Now there's a bunch of clinical geriatric syndromes on board as well as multiple pain points. It, it's going to be hard to make headway in that amount of time. And so you tend to see a lot of people at least save off did through the, the private sector. So we were billing anywhere between like we, when we started, I think we were at like $60 and we moved up to 65 or 70 by the time we were closing for a 30 minute session. And that's pretty close to the reimbursement that Medicare has, which is kind of like the equivalent-ish of OHIP. It's obviously done in a little bit of different ways where there's multipliers and, and codes, but kind of similar with respect to how you would be billing that public model with Medicare versus OHIP. So from a reimbursement perspective, the dollars are actually fairly similar in terms of what our projections were from uh, the Canadian context with stave off versus what we are going to be able to be reimbursed through Medicare in the stave off context in the US. So from that perspective, it's actually quite similar. It's just, um, yeah, just getting yourself known in the different communities and, and what those referral networks are going to look like. And if they are a little bit different in the US versus in Canada, direct access is something that is across the board in Canada that isn't necessarily the case in the U.S. There are still states that are fighting for direct access, some that you can be a primary clinician, so you can seek uh, care through a PT first before going to your physician, but then you need, within 30 days, you need a doctor's note to, to kind of go along with the, the primary care diagnosis from the PT. So there are just like little nuancey things from that perspective, uh, but from the dollars and cents at the end of the day, it's actually quite similar. Cool. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into it. What would you consider if I was to ask you, oh, you've done all this research, you're looking at your data and we'll get into the kind of nitty gritty of it, I'm sure. But in a general sense, why should people lift as they age? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we think about our aging physiology, we know that when we think about all the changes that happen in different systems, right? We 
see a decrease in stroke volume, cardiac output, max heart rate, all these types of things in the cardiovascular system. We see rigidity of the rib cage in the pulmonary system. We see a decrease in strength and power, especially those type two, those fast twitch fibers in the musculoskeletal system. When we kind of take all of that and we boil it down, we see that as we get older, we start to lose reserve. What that means is when you are 20, what it took to complete your activities of daily living may have been like 15% of your max strength. For a lot of our older adults, you can be getting at 85 to 90% of your max strength to go up a flight of stairs. So what ends up happening is that we don't go upstairs as often. We get more fatigued when we're working at higher percents of our max capacity, that potential for injury can be higher and you can't repeat it. If you're listening to this podcast and you've done a one rep max, you know that it crushes you for the rest of the day. You're not going to be able to do that again. And for our clients who cannot get up out of a chair without using their hands, that means that their one rep max is less than their body weight and gravity. And when we think about it like that, you consider how dire a situation it is when we're working with these older adults who are at risk for these things. And that's something that Dustin and I and our MMOA team call one rep max living, where a person's day-to-day existence is at or exceeding their one rep max for their body's reserve and resiliency. And that is where we try and reframe a lot of this rehab perspective because there's so many people who say, well, it's dangerous for me to put a barbell in the hand of somebody with osteoporosis, or I couldn't possibly do that. They have uh, CHF or congestive heart failure. And, and we flip it and we're like, well, what's the danger if they don't get stronger? What's the danger if now they are not strong enough to get up out of a toilet? That is where falls happen in the bathroom. That's where hip fractures happen. That's where that transition to hospital uh, hospital happens. They have that uh, hospital acquired sarcopenia or muscular weakness, and then they're transitioning into institutionalization or skilled nursing or, or some other need for advanced level care. And so to flip the script and say, what's the risk if we don't load them appropriately? is something that is increasingly more relevant in our older adult population, especially with our aging demographic and our our need to be helping these older adults who want to age in place um, to be able to do that. So the, the big thing in our existence, and this is very, very true in older adults, is that we don't have a movement problem. We don't have a movement problem in Canada. We don't have a movement problem in the US. We have a lack of movement problem. And so we talk about all this aging physiology but physical inactivity and sedentary behavior are accelerators to decline. It just happens at a much faster rate. And so we need to be thinking about that when we are maybe being a little bit tentative um, with how we're thinking about loading our older adults, because if we're not giving that appropriate dosage, they're not going to get stronger and you're essentially wasting their time and their money because they're not going to be seeing that the truly clinically relevant changes in their strength that are required for them to be able to do the things that they want to do successfully. You raised a really amazing point there that I've never really considered, which is if, if you can't get up out of a chair, you're living at your one rep max. And then how does that affect your reserve? How does that affect your day-to-day recovery and subsequent to that, your quality of life over an extended period of time. And I imagine what you've found is the longer that this goes on for the more rapidly the decline occurs. 
Well, more that that our system is set up in a sick care system, not a healthcare system. So false prevention as an example, right? The earlier we intervene and identify risk factors for falls, the quicker and less likely a person is to have an injury that leads to um, lifelong years living with disability, that increased um, years living with disability. But that doesn't happen. Maybe an outpatient, if someone's seeing you for an injury, a, a PT or an allied health professional can flag that. But most of the time, people are going to be tripping and hitting walls. They're going to be stumbling. They're going to be falling, but they have gotten up. And it isn't until they come in with a hip fracture and they're getting their hip replaced that they're like, oh, dang, they have a whole bunch of these risk factors. And now they're getting into our PT rehab care and this has been happening for 10, 15 years. When you have a person who's deconditioned for a long period of time, you're going to see that newbie gains, right? That motor control, that, that sharp kind of uptick in capacity very early on, but it's going to take a lot longer to get to those relevant, clinically relevant thresholds that might change the trajectory of a person's life. So if we can start identifying individuals a little bit earlier, that's not the way our healthcare system in Canada or the U.S. is set up. But one way that some of our private practice clinicians can start to be kind of reconceptualizing how we are tackling our assessment in geriatric care, then we might be able to make a bigger difference earlier. You've said that a couple of times, that kind of early detection. For you, is there, a, is there an age where that should begin in the research? Is there some tools or methods that you use clinically? Uh, in terms of age, no. You know, I always joke, there's that statistic that tries to scare everybody that 30% or one in three uh, persons over the age of 65 fall each year. And I say, LOL, probably one in three people in their thirties fall in Canada on ice every single year. The reason why it's clinically relevant is because that injury rate starts to go up, right? So we, we use this as a scare tactic, but I have clients who are in their fifties who I am way more concerned if they were to hit the ground, because I know they wouldn't be able to get back up versus my 85 year old competitive bowler who's coming in annoyed that she can't have the same power in her swing and her shoulder. So from an age perspective, absolutely not. From a screening perspective, that's a really good question. Um, there are a couple of outcome measures that we have that can allow us to start to advocate in a really positive way. One from a false prevention perspective is the study. So the study is a false screening tool that is also taught in medical um, education programs. So in terms of advocating to primary care physicians or family doctors, they are given that study algorithm. It's, it's through the CDC, but I'm pretty sure it's taught in Canadian um, schools as well. And it, it basically is this identification of risk factors with kind of this call to action of like, okay, if you're seeing a vitamin D deficiency, start them on supplementation. If you see an issue with balance, get them to a PT referral. If you're seeing issues with environmental things, if you have a person who who's, has a nurse coming in for a home assessment, for example, trigger that referral to OT. So it's taking this multifactorial approach and multidisciplinary approach to falls prevention and, and triggering a reduction in as many risk factors as possible to try and reduce that falls risk for an older adult. Um, so that's one way to start speaking that language and advocating for older adults. From the prevention piece, there in terms of physical resiliency and reserve, there are some outcome measures that we can start looking at. Some of them from a prevention perspective, we don't have a ton of literature in it just yet. Becca Georgery, she's uh, down here in the U.S. She's doing some um, normalized, uh, normalizing data or finding um, normative values rather for 
master's athletes, as well as community dwelling older adults, as well as uh, older adults who are living in assisted living or institutionalization. And I think that is a really interesting thing. So for example, like a five times sit to stand for a healthy community dwelling older adult in their eighties is something like 12 seconds, but for a master's athlete in that category, in that age category, it's like 8.7. So like there's a 30% improvement between a master's athlete who has optimized their fitness versus a, a healthy community dwelling older adult who we would say probably has average fitness versus somebody who's in um, kind of in homebound status or working in more assisted facilities. So we have some of that. I'm a huge advocate as well for trying to get individuals to be being screened for frailty and getting them on uh, identifying some of those risk factors um, because we know that the further along a person is along that frailty spectrum, people think, oh, I know what frailty looks like. It's that person who's in a wheelchair, who's very weak and old and is, is very sick. But what we're seeing is that there's a big continuum and individuals at risk for frailty, that pre-frail population encompasses about 50% of community dwelling older adults over 65. And many of the markers that we use to start to, to place these individuals along that continuum are things that with proper fitness and wellness initiatives can be really beneficial to change that trajectory and, and move them away from that furthering level of frailty. So that's another one that we teach a lot on to try and see if we can take the information we're already gathering in our assessment and give a more full clinical picture around where they lie on the frailty continuum. What are some of those markers? Phenotype of frailty, that's like a tongue twister. There's five of them, physical inactivity, um, fatigue and lethargy, slow gait speed, muscular weakness, and unexpected weight loss. So if you have one or two of those five criteria, you're considered to be pre-frail. And so physical inactivity, slow gait speed, and muscular weakness are three of the things that, and muscular weakness is the most predominant pre-frailty marker that we're seeing in the community, are things that are 100% in that health, wellness, and rehab umbrella. Things that we know and have the skills to be able to um, positively improve and things that can really change where they lie around prognosis and risk stratification. So if zero of those five markers, you're considered to be robust, one to two, you're considered to be pre-frail, and three or more, you're considered to have um, established frailty. And then from this, uh, as well as some of the other things that you've spoken to already, does that increase your risk in the literature of like falls? Because falls are, I mean, there's there's obviously a number of comorbid things that people can suffer from, but falling is a huge burden on geriatric population, is it not? Yeah, 100%. And and absolutely, yes, there is a heightened risk in pre-frailty and then an even bigger risk with established frailty. So it's kind of this stepwise increase in risk. Uh, with established frailty, we also have risk of all-cause mortality, risk for transition to institutionalization, risk for admittance to hospital, longer length of stay once in hospital, a higher risk of 30-day hospital readmit, a higher risk of a more severe COVID infection, uh, increased need for ventilation as a consequence of COVID, general surgery, we're more likely to see delirium and a worse outcomes as a consequence of going undergoing um, anesthesia and surgery. So we are seeing like 
it's unfortunate that almost every negative health indicator is made worse by an individual who is identifying further along that frailty spectrum. And so we're seeing things like hospital networks are starting to uh, screen for frailty before looking at eligibility for operative care because they know that it, it can be so predictive of their outcomes. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're avoiding having surgery for individuals who are frail. They'll probably maybe have more conversations around risk, but they're trying to see like, are there other steps that we need to be thinking about post-op that's going to really try and improve the outcomes for these individuals because, or even just their monitoring, because we know that individuals who do have more established frailty are less likely to have good outcomes coming out of surgery. So those are some of the examples that are coming up in the literature that are demonstrating why this identification along the spectrum is important. Because the thing that would drive me crazy is that when you think of a frail older person or an older person who is frail, if I'm using my proper language, is not necessarily something that that is associated with positive aging images right? It's usually very negative. And so I would never want to slap a label on a person that is potentially negative or stigmatizing or, or on the side of the clinician thinking that maybe their prognosis isn't as good, that they may not put as much effort in. If we are going to be using that, that type of system, that labeling system, there has to be a trigger. If there's going to be a trigger that they're pre-frail, like let's put them in a care pathway that is going to try and improve their outcomes. And, and this isn't specific to one pathology, But if we think about it the same way, right, if you have a person who flags on a blood test that they're either in borderline or or full-fledged diabetes, what happens? We trigger this care pathway, right? We start getting their blood work every three months to look at their HbA1c levels to see how they're doing over the the course of that three months. We're referring um, to a dietitian. We're starting to think about wound care. We're, you know, like there's a step that happens. But frailty, because it's kind of this physical output about how a person is doing in their day-to-day life, it seems a little bit more gray, but it shouldn't be, right? Like that should be the trigger that we need to have this person in rehab to optimize their physical resiliency. And what it's showing is that across the board, frailty is considered a vulnerability to external stressors. And it's a clinical geriatric syndrome, which by definition is a constellation of signs and symptoms across multiple organ systems that when you look at the output from a physical perspective is a a vulnerability or a a lack of physical resiliency. So when we we see that, that's kind of like 99% of our older adult population, unfortunately, because of our rates of chronic disease and and multimorbidity that is just unfortunately on the rise. So just things that we can start thinking, you know, we don't need to think about what's our exercise guideline for somebody with cardiovascular disease versus someone with diabetes, because oftentimes they're comorbid. And the biggest thing is like, how do we get a person fitter, stronger, more resilient, more able to handle stress, get them sleeping better, eating better, their social supports, are they socially frail? Like if they're not seeing a person and except for once a week and they fall just after they leave, like that's a vulnerable place for our older adults to be. So just things that, that we can be thinking about to start changing the narrative when it comes to our older adult care. Well, and I think what you said there about the importance of you assign a label to somebody and you give them no opportunity to do anything about it. I'm sure you've seen a lot in in working with this population that people lose confidence, right? Like if you're a frail person, you're losing muscle mass or you, you characterize yourself as having five of those 
risk factors and you withdraw from social settings and you don't feel strong. There's a couple of stories that I've talked about on other podcasts where I've had some older adults come in and they've said to me, I don't want to pick up a bag of milk at the grocery store because it's too heavy. And that's kind of something that just, it doesn't make them feel very well. And so you're tagging them with a label and then you're not giving them any tools to do anything about it. And that's only going to perpetuate this negative cycle from a psychosocial standpoint and probably only lead to further disability for them. Yeah, our team refers to that as pre-traumatic stress disorder. And I think it's an output of an ageist healthcare system and ourselves as as individuals being in, inherently ageist. You know, I, I talk to clinicians all the time and I said, were you excited to turn 30? Were you excited to turn 40? Most people say no, or that they had a hard time with it. And, and I was like, that's because already in your mind, you consider getting old a bad thing. We shouldn't think of it as a bad thing because the alternative isn't very good either, right? Like I want to get older. I want to see my kids get older. I want to see my grandkids and I, but I want to do so at a physical capacity level that I am going to be okay with. I'm going to try and optimize that, right? You know, there's changes that happen with age, but you also know the demands on your life tend to change as you get older as well. It just shows that, you know, we have this preconceived notion of what it means to get older and we don't associate it with positive things. And where right now, what the literature is showing is that having negative aging stereotypes, thinking that old equals weak, frail, demented, slow, unable, like completely inept at technology, like all these negative things actually link to really negative health outcomes, right? You're more likely if you have a high risk gene for early onset dementia, if you have negative aging stereotypes, you're more likely to express that gene versus those that don't. You're more likely to have cardiovascular events if you have negative aging stereotypes versus positive aging stereotypes. You're more likely to uh, develop mobility disability with uh, negative aging stereotypes because you believe that when you're 70, you're supposed to be slow and sore and not do anything versus wise and able and retired and empowered a veteran, all these like positive words, these empowering, powerful words that, that give you that, that change in your perception. Again, that reframe to, to think about what you can do. And when this shows up in our healthcare system, this is where we get this pandemic of under dosage of exercise interventions that happens across the board with our healthcare providers. If you believe that your older adults are weak, you're going to give them ankle pumps. You're not going to give them deadlifts. If you think that they don't have the resiliency and that their muscles aren't going to respond to load the same way a younger person's muscles are going to respond to load, you're going to give them something that isn't going to challenge them. And so we get our clinicians to reflect on where are those biases coming from? And are you using that age, what their age is to give an idea of what they should be able to do? Or are you truly getting an assessment of their capacity to be able to appropriately dose progress and challenge their musculoskeletal system so that you're driving the adaptation you want to? That was amazing what you just said there. I think, um, you know, we hear it a lot in clinical practice. Oh, I'm just getting old, right? Oh, it was, it's because I'm old, right? Or it's just a random sort of excuse that people say. And to your point, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have these programs that are put in place to stress people appropriately. And uh, like you said, if you're just giving somebody ankle pumps and underdosing them, it's, it's really quite pointless in programming. And it happens so fast, right? And it's not, I don't mean to say that it's something done that's 
inherently malicious or, or people are trying to be harmful, but people who are trying to help, and this is not just healthcare providers, this is family members saying, oh, mom, don't do that. Or why did you shovel your driveway? I should have waited. You could have hurt yourself. And by not being there to shovel their driveway, they were stuck in the house and now they're not around their social supports because you, you thought that they were in danger, right? And, and it happens really fast. I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I, I had a wrist injury after my daughter. I'm a competitive weightlifter and it was just not getting better. I, I was seeing PT, I was doing PT myself. And so I finally went to an upper extremity surgeon and he was able to give me a cortisone shot just so that I could load the snot out of it. I was like, if you get my pain down even a little bit so that I can load it, like, great. And I said to him, I was like, like a true athlete, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I can do this. And so I said to him, I was like, I want to be weightlifting into my eighties. I was kind of saying like, you know, this is not something that I'm willing to give up. And he said, oh yeah, well, stuff starts to change in your forties and you're not really going to load it the same way as you start. And this was just something that he was like, honestly, like I almost went like feisty redhead on him, but like he was sticking a big beetle into my wrist. So I didn't really want to do that, but he was just making an off the cuff comment. Right. But those, those types of comments, when they happen over and over and over again, I, this, I was 30 years old. So if every healthcare interaction or every family interaction from 30 to 65 is about, oh, slow down. Oh, you don't want to do that. Oh, you're doing weightlifting. You're crossfitting. How about aquafit? You know, you're, you're getting a little bit older. People get hurt with that kind of stuff. And those types of messages, they trickle in like these little thought viruses that you don't think are going to impact you, but over time they do. Like if you had somebody who came up to you every single day, you were a very educated person. You were very confident. And they said, you are stupid. And every single day they came up and they said, you are stupid. Eventually that's going to impact you, even though you know, it's not true. And so, um, that pre-traumatic stress disorder was, was dubbed by uh, Ruth Levy. She was a, a PT that was working into her nineties. And she was saying that, you know, I'm educated. I know what happens with aging. I work with older adults all the time. I know that I have the capacity and she's like, I still find myself being tentative because I've been having these interactions so often in the healthcare system and with my family members. So things that we need to be thinking about, and it makes me so hypervigilant when I'm thinking about even how I'm relaying a diagnosis or how I'm talking about falls risk, or I'm not saying that we're not going to relay some of the information, but if we have every healthcare interaction that is negative and things that are wrong with you and what you can't do, sometimes it's really nice to give your older adults some green lights. Like you're doing really great here. And you should keep doing that. And you are absolutely able to do that. You are safe. You are mm -hmm. safe to do that. You may be sore, but you are safe. And um, that was a, a phrase that one of our clinicians used. And I totally stole it because I thought that was really wonderful. You know, that re reconceptualization of, of that type of thing. I'm probably going to steal it as well. You should. <laughs> just, just uh, and speaking to your point, the more people that you hear it from or some variants of it, the more you are going to believe it, I think. And that's always the balance, particularly when you're trying to present information that might be a little bit apprehensive for the person to hear, right? So you fall into this category and then having 
that opportunity to reframe it for the individual, I think is really, really valuable. And we see that in all aspects of our care, whether it be talking about an imaging report that they have, uh, an injury with a longer prognosis, something like a, a post-surgical ACL, whatever that is, there are things that require a little bit more time. And many people are looking for uh, more quick fixes than there are sometimes. And having that opportunity to reframe, I think is, is really, really valuable. So let's talk about how we get there then. You mentioned at the top some of your research and what that's looking at, high-risk populations and strength training. Let's change direction a little bit and go down that rabbit hole and talk about maybe what your research is looking at, and, and then we can go off from there. Yeah, so my research took individuals who were at risk for frailty or had uh, risk factors for mobility disability or established mobility disability. This was two trials. And I compared a high intensity barbell specific program to a moderate intensity, more hypertrophy style program. So high intensity program was three to five sets of three to five reps of things like squats, deadlifts, overhead presses, bench press, step ups, things like that. And then our moderate intensity was three sets of 10 to 15 of kind of isolation type stuff. So knee extensions, glute bridges, bicep curls, tricep extensions, kind of those isolation type exercises, and we compared. And so the big part of my PhD, and, and we're going to need bigger studies, was I wanted to show that it was safe and that it was feasible for older adults. Because when I started talking about, you know, putting barbells into older adults' hands, I would get feedback at conferences. Like, she has no idea what she's talking about. She hasn't seen my patient population. There's no way I could do this with my older adults, right? And now it's been five or six years and that narrative has started to change. Thankfully, we've been doing a lot of advocacy work there, but I also now have the literature to show that there were no negative adverse events. Both groups saw improvements in a variety of physical imbalance related outcome measures. And our older adults in the high intensity group were the ones who self-reported improvement, more improvements in mobility status. Like one of the things is that I compared it to another appropriately dosed exercise program. So I'm glad that both you take sedentary individuals and you put them into an appropriately dosed exercise program. You're going to expect that both of them are going to improve. One of the things that is kind of my beef about being in research is that you're going to take a group of sedentary, inactive older adults, and you're going to put them into low intensity exercise versus a weightless control. Even a, a person who is doing, if a person does nothing to something, they're going to see some initial improvement. Yeah. Right. And, and we've spent billions of dollars on these healthcare or these exercise trials that show people who are doing nothing, they start doing something, they get better. And it, it muddles the intensity piece, right? Because when you're comparing no activity to low intensity, it's always going to improve. Yeah. And then, and then you go, oh, well, this is what they should be doing. Low intensity exercise. Exactly. Exactly. And so at the very beginning, like that can be the minimal effective dose, right? That's like the, the get them in, get them doing something. These movement snacks, these habit stacking interventions, things like that, that we often do is like this low hanging fruit in rehab. But then, then what? Like, then how do we continue to progress them? And the thing about, you know, a, a deadlift or a squat is that it's mimicking picking something up off the floor and getting up out of a toilet. And you don't have to use barbells, you can use kettlebells, dumbbells, cat litter bags, like whatever around the house to 
make sure that you are, are creating that stimulus for driving that adaptation. And so my research looked at, you know, that safety and feasibility, and we showed that there were no negative adverse outcomes to individuals that were doing barbell training. And then the next step would be to really start building on this and say, okay, now for longer interventions, what intensity do we really need with our older adults in order to see sustained changes? And that, that's unfortunately a really challenging research question because getting into the prevention space is challenging with older adults, getting people, you know, any person who's been working in rehab, they know that lifestyle change is hard. It's why people look for medications to control their blood pressure rather than really going into an in-depth nutrition, sleep, stress, physical activity intervention first. But it's, it's something that the more people who are speaking the language of prevention, the better. And, you know, we, we tend to be in silos sometimes fitness to PT to medicine. And how do we create bridges between all three so that there's a continuum that's going to optimize the health of our population and especially our older adults. Yeah. I always say like what we need to get people in on some rung of the ladder that they need to climb. Right. And so whether it is, as you alluded to, if someone's incredibly sedentary, getting them to do some of these lower level fitness things and then, but then what, where do you go from there? And often if you tell somebody speaking to some of the earlier points that you made, you know, you fall into this category of whatever this particular diagnosis is or pre-diagnosis is and to get better, you need to do this, 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 and this, and you have to cut everything else out that you enjoy or, you know, you perceive as you enjoy in, in your current lifestyle. That just leads to an awful lot of overwhelm and not very high compliance rates from the people that you see. And so there does need to be a starting point. And I wonder if along the way, like you found resistance from people regarding the lifting piece, like are people so set in their ways and scared about lifting that they don't want to do it? And then how do you navigate that interaction? On the side of the client or the side of the clinician? For you as the clinician, having to deal with the clients that are a little bit more apprehensive or resistant to some of the suggestions and some of all the other things that we've talked about being like, there's no way I'm putting a barbell on my back. That's the wrong thing to do. 100%. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of things. One is I will start with intentional underdosage. So one of the worst things you can do as a clinician is overshoot where you think your client's capacity is and then have to start backpedaling because they found it too challenging because you're not, that's not setting them up for success. So I will say, I think that a client can do a 10 pound sit to stand holding onto a dumbbell. I'll get them to go body weight. And then I will be that cheerleader. I was like, oh, that was way, way, way too easy. Let's start adding some weight. When you start getting into the weights that look a little bit bigger, you can get a little bit more apprehension. So say, you know, they're getting to 10 pounds of like, Christine, there's no way I can't do it. I'm like, okay, we don't have to do that. Let's bring it down to eight pounds. Okay. I'll do that. And then I'll try and do one of two things. Either I will slow the tempo down so that time under tension increases. So I'm still getting the stimulus that I want, but in a way that is less fear provoking, or I will do something called an AMRAP set. So that's as many reps as possible. It was made popular by CrossFit. So if I'm saying I'm doing three by five and they don't want to go up, I'm like, this is like, this is looking way too fast. There's no way this is hitting the appropriate dosage. I'll go, all right, Lorraine, we're doing the last set. This is the last set I'm going to make you do. I just want you to give me as many reps as you can do until you feel like your body is really tired. 
what inevitably happens is they give me 25. And then that sparks one confidence. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so much stronger than I think I am. Mm-hmm. The second thing is I get one of my sets that is at an appropriate stimulus to drive adaptation because that three by five was obviously underdosed. Mm-hmm. And it lets us have a conversation. See, you are so much stronger than you think you are. If you can do 20 reps at eight pounds, that extra two pounds is probably not going to be anything. So that would be the second strategy that I would use. The third strategy I would use is I would get them to like pick up their purse. (laughs) Be like, I want you to compare these things. Like you carry your dog who is 25 pounds. Like you're going to need, if you have to carry them up, you know, three steps, then you're going to have to be able to do that. So comparing it to something that's very relevant in their life too, is is a third way for me to start working through um, those types of conversations. So I kind of have a different depending on the client. Also, I'm totally okay with being the crazy physiotherapist. Like I was always, my reputation in Kingston was like, just so you know, if you go to Christina, like you're going to be moving. I was sweating. Like, and I just absolutely loved that, that most of my clients who were referred through somebody else, like kind of warned them about me, like warned them, like putting that into air quotes, but I just loved it because then then I didn't have to do any work. They knew that I was going to make them work hard. So, you know, the more consistent we are with that type of patterning, the more you you get known for that type of methodology. And then people seek you out for it because they know that's what they need. Well, and as you spoke to, I mean, this change has to come from somewhere, right? If there's been this continuous narrative about the care of, of older adults for a long period of time and there are pitfalls in the research, like comparing low level exercise to nothing and you know, now that you've done these studies, are there other people that are in this space doing research, looking at maybe like appropriate dosage and looking at um, outcome measures in terms of like functional capacity and stuff? Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. And we are. So we, we do, there's a, a bunch of different researchers across different areas that are starting to really push the paradigm in frailty. Nicholas Bray, I think he's about to finish his PhD. He's in London he is doing very similar stuff with pre-frailty, but in a multi-component program in Australia. Um, I forget her first name. Watson is her last name. Um, she was probably the biggest innovator. She did what was called the lift more trial. So she, have, have you heard of that, uh, Connor? No, I haven't. So the lift more trial was a study that was done. It was an eight month long intervention uh, done in Australia, first with women, then with men. They took individuals with moderate to severe osteoporosis and put them into an impact and barbell lifting program. So these are individuals that you would think the most shouldn't be doing things like jumping chin-ups where they accentuated the landing and deadlifts, but they saw not only did they see improvements in some of these functional outcome measures, but they improved their bone mineral density. They improved their bone mineral density. There wasn't an increase in fragility fractures between that group and the control. And then they repeated their findings in men. And now they're licensing it as a program that is, is available across Australia. And I think internationally as well. So really interesting stuff, right? Because those are like, that would be a group where if you came in and you're like, oh, moderate or like severe osteoporosis in your mind, you wouldn't be thinking, okay, I know their bone mineral density is really poor, Muscles respond to load, bones respond to load. So I need to make sure I include impact in my intervention. No, we do the opposite, right? We're like, oh, they have severe osteoporosis, avoid all twisting, lifting, loading, impact, because we're going to create that risk. We should be thinking the exact opposite. You're also not going to create any physiological change is what we're also told. Right. 
And that is also inaccurate because they saw in the femoral neck that there was a statistically significant improvement, improvement from baseline in their bone mineral density scores. And there was a decline in the control group, like which, which you would expect from people who are avoiding any and all impact. So it's just so fascinating that, you know, we know, for example, that postmenopausal women, when, because they're in an estrogen deficient state, that that accelerates bone mineral density loss. And then we say, let's do Aquafit. And nothing against Aquafit, but if we know that there's an accelerated loss that happens across that hormonal transition in a female's life, why are we not trying to, to circumvent or, or prevent that decline, right? We should be, that should be when you're like, have you ever considered a jumping program? Because we have evidence to support that, you know, two to three sets of three to five jumps done in multiple times per week can help to maintain bone mineral density and it's safe, you know, like getting to like 20 to 30 jumps in a session mm-hmm. because you're loading your bones. Like that, that's what we need to do. And so it's just so interesting how, because of fear, fear of adverse health outcomes in our medical system, we have almost created this, this position where we're not empowering people to take the steps that they need to take in order to maintain those or mitigate a lot of those losses. So it's just kind of frustrating to see, um, but definitely something that we need to be kind of changing the conversation around. That's a good example. I think it's Shana Watson and I'm, I'm going to awful. I should, I should know her first name. That's my research mind, right? I just know who the first author, the primary last name of the author is. You could probably name every author on the paper's last name. Last name, <laughs> yes. And then it's like the first initial, so like you know yeah. it's something. Oh, yeah. What about changes across male versus female? Are there differences in the positive effects of resistance training in the older adult? Or are they relatively equal? That's a good question. I don't know. I haven't seen any studies that are comparing the effects. I would assume just based on a couple of big things. One is that females in general are very underrepresented in exercise literature and exercise studies because we're complicated and we're cycling um, with our sex hormones, which just makes us these confounding variables that could influence our outcomes. So for a long time, a lot of females were excluded and much of our data and our uh, messaging was based on research studies involving only men. But because as women transition into menopause, that cycling ceases, right? We see a decline in testosterone in men as they get older, menopause, and we see that decline in estrogen in women. I would assume that the the responses would be be pretty much the same. In our master's um, athletes, we're starting to see that like women maintain power a little bit longer than men. And then the slope of the line starts to even out. But other than that, I can't see too much. And that's in like really active uh, athletes. Well, and it's probably also hard to say in, when there are so many other potential variables that go into to it as well. What about strength versus cardiovascular adaptations? Is there one that uh, you feel is more important in some of these early strength training programs that people are undertaking? there must be some cardiovascular upside to that as well that they're finding. Yeah. So we see like, obviously aerobic is going to target the cardiovascular system more intensely than resistance. You're going to see some carryover with both, right? If you start running, you're going to see a little bit of increase in leg strength. If you're going from doing nothing to to running or cycling, but the short answer is yes. (laughs) So there was a recent systematic review of meta-analysis that was looking at high intensity interval training and individuals, older adults with at least two cardiovascular risk factors, as well as progressive resistance training. 
And what they saw was progressive resistance training tends to change body composition a little bit more in terms of increasing lean body mass. VO2 max tends to be more, um, more intensely increased with high intensity interval training, but the answer is probably to do both. So in rehab, we tend to focus a lot on the strength training side of things because it's the one that is a new movement pattern and tends to require a lot more supervision, especially if you are pushing the boundary, like I'm advocating for us to push the boundary. One of the barriers to uptake is that it's harder on the side of the clinician, right? It's easier for them to do seated exercise versus standing exercise and having to monitor. And if, you know, ish hits the fan, clinicians need to be strong to make sure that they're strong themselves physically to make sure that they can then manage those situations and know how to get out of those. Um, I call it an oh shit moment where you have a client that falls on you or something, but we can always be putting things like circuits into our program that combines progressive resistance training with aerobic intervals or balance intervals. So when we look at interventions that are time matched, so you take an aerobic exercise, a resistance exercise and a half aerobic, half resistance, what you're seeing is, especially when taking sedentary individuals and putting them into these programs is that there wasn't a ton of ton greater improvement in the aerobic training group versus the mixed group. And there wasn't a ton of uh, greater improvement in the resistance training group than the mixed group, which means that even in a very, we can be more efficient in our interventions by combining aerobic intervals and resistance training intervals, for example. So if you're working upper body, get them to do a strict press set and then get them to on the bike for a minute as their active rest or recovery. These are obviously for healthier community dwelling older adults, but that can be like doing sit to stands and then doing an arm bike for somebody who's lower levels. So that might be do two sit to stands with min to mod assist for your client who's mostly seated or kind of in that home bound status and then get them to be doing biking intervals with their arms or, you know, seated upper body movements that are, have more of a cardiovascular focus rather than a resistance training focus. Well, and I think that's also important because you know, sometimes people they'll, they'll take like a snippet, like three minutes of the podcast and they'll, and they'll decide that that's the overarching theme that we've talked about, which is, you know, there's going to be some people that will probably come to me and say, well, you've just said that every adult has to do like a clean and jerk. And I don't think that's really what we're saying here. It just has to be matched to the individual. So as you alluded to, look, if they're in a, a really difficult state and they can't lift the barbell, they need to lift something that creates adaptation. And there are a variety of measures we can use to try and, and track that. And then again, just getting them into that rung on the ladder and getting some buy-in and then maybe they do progress and, and maybe their progression isn't as quote unquote substantial. We might not see it as substantial from a societal standpoint, but it's going to improve their confidence. It's going to hopefully improve their function. And I think like you said, it's safe for them to do. And your whole thing is just about trying to reframe aging, essentially. Yeah. Not everybody needs to be doing deadlifts, but probably more of your older adults can do deadlifts than you think. And it doesn't have to be, you know, clean and jerks. It just has to be hard. Your interventions have to be hard. I think we can take a lot from the fitness space around the intensity of exercise and trickle them into our rehab interventions so that, you know, we can coach first. When I'm teaching clinicians, we talk about this continuum. So we take a deadlift and 
we talk about options for the max assist individual who lives in a wheelchair 99% of their day. Then we take the deadlift and we bring it to modifications for the min to mod assist, somebody that you're definitely having a gait belt on them. You are making sure that one hand is on the walker and their rep ranges are going to be a lot less. Like they can still hinge. And then we take it for the healthier community dwelling older adult where I might be starting with a kettlebell deadlift, you know, like there's a sliding scale and we need to be masters of that scale when we are thinking about how we're approaching our interventions for older adults. And uh, you spoke to it earlier a little bit, supervised versus unsupervised exercise, group class versus maybe one-on-one what is the research saying about that? Is there upside to one versus the other? I assume that if the person's not very experienced, they should start in some sort of supervised setting for a lot of the factors that you have already outlined. Yeah. The best exercise is the one the person does is basically where the research is saying is so find something that they're willing to do. Some people are not going to have access to, you know, a supervised intervention. You're probably going to get the results a bit faster when it's supervised because you can start to see a bit more when things are uh, more underdosed, when the adaptation has already happened, you can kind of push that a little bit more, but that that's definitely kind of where the literature is going. I'm sorry. I have another call that's going to start in the next little while. That's okay. Do we need to close it out? Yeah. Sorry. It's just that I run the pelvic division and the CrossFit Open just got announced. So I want a, an interview about that next. <laughs> okay. Well, we can wrap it up, but uh, I'm sure I'll have you back at some point to talk about some of some of the research um, that you're doing. Any any closing thoughts before I kind of let you go? Oh, tell the people where they can find you on social media. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Christina underscore Previt. I teach through the Institute of Clinical Excellence. You can find us on YouTube. We do a podcast every single day as well, like a lot shorter than these type of interviews. So that's at ICE physio ptnice.com and yeah that's that's me in terms of like takeaway points one is you know watch that underdosage sometimes that can be our pandemic of underdosage can be because of a little bit of ageism whether we want to kind of admit to it or not and our older adults are capable of so much more than we think they are sometimes so so kind of challenge that and and see can you push your older adult just a little bit a little bit harder tomorrow when you're you're kind of seeing them after after listening to this interview. Great. Well, Christina, I really appreciate it. I'm sure people will uh, have some great takeaways from this podcast. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.